Psalm 34 of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. His soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of all of them, out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. My name is Marty. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm glad you could join us. This is the place where we need to be. I know it's not the place we want to be right now, but we are gathered together as God's people in Christ around his word. And so we're very grateful for that. And I hope you have his word open in front of you to Psalm 34. But before we look at that, I just want to make a few preliminary comments. First of all, we just heard from Pastor Nick. And we are excited to come back in just a few weeks to be together with God's people, singing his praises, hearing his word, and communing together. And as you think about that, and I'm sure you may have a lot of questions or thoughts, one thing I just want to make sure you know is that in, as you plan for you and your family and, and wisdom on how to best re-engage with us, know that the live stream will continue on well past June 28th. And so we want to make sure you know that. Second of all, if you do have questions and thoughts, can I ask that you just maybe grab a piece of paper right now and write those down so that we can put those aside for right now? Because we don't want these questions or our thoughts to take over from our time in God's word and be great to focus in to hear God's word together. Well, why don't we pray and ask God to be with us as we consider Psalm 34. Father God, we do thank you that you have gathered us in your son, Jesus. We thank you that you have called us to be your very own. And we ask you, Lord, this morning that you will help us. Focus us in on your word. Clear our minds and focus us in on what you want us to hear 
from this psalm. Lord, be with us now. May the thoughts of our minds and hearts and the meditation of my lips, Lord, be pleasing unto you. Amen. Well, this week I had an opportunity to witness what could be a lifelong fishtail, quite literally. My daughter Colleen caught a huge fish, an amazingly big fish, especially for pond fishing. And it will be interesting over the years to watch her tell the story just to see how big this fish gets each time she tells the story. And you know what fishtails are, don't you? There are stories that start out one way and grow bigger and more exhilarating the more that they're told. Now, what does this have to do with Psalm 34? Well, the occasion for this psalm occurred in one of those stories that could very well grow in lore and as a tale over time. Now, see that inscription there right before verse 1 in Psalm 34? And we have really good reason to believe that that inscription is every bit inspired by the Spirit as verses 1 through 22 are. And oftentimes in the Psalms, when you see those little inscriptions, it's very worth chasing down the historical reference to that because it sheds new and very interesting light in the Psalms. And in this case... The psalm was written in response, as it says there, to David's performance in front of Achish, or as he's also known as Abimelech, way back in 1 Samuel chapter 21. And I'm going to ask you to turn there because it's really helpful to see what happened there. You may have remembered last summer when we went through 1 Samuel. This is the part of 1 Samuel when David was on the run from Saul. He was being chased by Saul because Saul wanted him dead. And David didn't have anywhere to go. And so he went from town to town, but he couldn't find a safe and secure spot. So eventually he ended up across the border into enemy hands, enemy lines. And that's where our story picks up here from 1 Samuel chapter 21, beginning in verse 10. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, king of Gath. So he's changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let the spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see this man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow continue into my house? David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Abdul. And when his brothers at all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. Now you can turn back to Psalm 34, but just as to remember what happened here, David's theatrics there in Gath got him out of quite a bind, didn't they? 
And then he goes back to the cave of Adullam, and he has all these hundreds of men gathered around him, waiting to hear. I mean, you can just imagine the questions. David, how did you get out from that situation in Gath? I mean, they certainly knew who you were. How did you escape? Well, at that point, David could have launched into a very detailed story about his antics. He could have played up how quickly he made the madman scene and started foaming at the mouth and writing provocative graffiti on the king's door. He could have even embellished a bit and exaggerated and talked about how he was in the clutches of Abimelech's strongest men and he broke free and ran back to Adullam. And there David was in the cave, everyone waiting to hear how it happened. 400 men were listening. That day, 400 tales of David's amazing adventure could have been launched and grown over the years to come. No doubt they could have grown even more. I mean, we heard it from 1 Samuel 21 that Saul killed thousands. But David, he struck down tens of thousands. And oh, by the way, he won an Israeli Academy Award for best performance in the king's court. He could have done that. But he didn't. He wouldn't allow it. He sat there in the cave, he paused and gathered his thoughts and spoke Psalm 34 to those men who were bitter in soul. Not one boast of his own cleverness, his only boast as it says there in Psalm 34 too, his only boast is in the Lord. He could have spoke of his deafness, of being in high pressure situations, Instead, he only tells of one little thing he did that 1 Samuel 21 didn't even pick up on. He called out to the Lord, and the Lord delivered him. You see, David didn't want any attention drawn away from the Lord. He didn't want any attention on him for this amazing tale. He wanted to make sure these 400 men knew exactly who was responsible For what had happened to him. And so as we cast our eyes back on Psalm 34. We can see that this psalm really has just one aim for us this morning. One aim that Dave wanted these men to hear. And that comes in verses 1 through 3. But verse 3. Because of what the Lord has done. And because of who the Lord is. Let us all together magnify his name. Let us all together exalt the great name of the Lord. Friends, if you're a Christian here this morning listening in, you know what a good aim it is to do such a thing. And if you're like me, you know how easy it is to fall short of such a simple calling. To praise his name continually. So let's let David keep talking here in the psalm. We know he isn't spinning a fishtail now. He is doing what we should want to do at every point of our lives. Gathering people together to speak so well and so sincerely about our Lord, our God. So the first thing David wants us to hear is he says, Come praise with me in verses 1 through 10. David, David is effectively saying, I have reason to praise him. You should join me. This was my experience. It can be yours as well. Well, why praise this great God? Well, I think it's obvious, but just in case we missed it, David says, verse 4, 
This God listens to those who humbly call upon him. He calms all the fears. Verse 5, he lifts up the countenance of those who look to him. Verse 6, he hears the weeping of the poor and troubled. Verse 7, there's no situation where the Lord or his messengers won't be right there with us. And so as David experienced the Lord, he asks us to do the same. And so in verses 8 and 9, he gives two strong imperatives. This first one has this great statement that sticks out here in Psalm 34. He said, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Know deep down in the very essence of who you are, to your very senses, that this God is profoundly good. And then he says there in verse 9 that we all should fear him. And if we praise the Lord that we fear, we will have no lack. We should praise and fear the Lord. Why? Because he is good, as verse 8 says. He provides all good for us. One author says it this way. This word good here in verse 8 embraces everything that is beneficial for life, pleasing to life, and harmonious to life. To enjoy the goodness of God is Indeed, the blessed life to live. So David adds that line in verse 8. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. And this is the same word here in verse 8 as Psalms 1-1 starts out the whole book with. People who trust the Lord and experience the goodness of God will also enjoy the heavenly bliss of knowing they are right with this God. So David says to his man and to us this morning, come, praise God with me. But he also has, along with this call to praise with him, another call, because he doesn't want it just to be an emotionally, emotion-only response. And so David says there in verses 11 through 21, not only praise with me, but learn from me. See here in verse 11, David transitions from a praise leader to a wisdom teacher. And his words and tone there in verses 11 and following become very similar to that of his son who wrote most of the book of Proverbs. Now that he has his men gathered together, now that their attention has shifted from David's feats to the Lord's saving actions, he wants them to know, to love, and to honor this Lord. He wants them to know how to fear the Lord and walk in his ways. See, in other words, David's praise in this psalm is not just emotional. It's edifying. It's meant to build up all those around who are willing to listen to him so that they will continually and substantively boast in the Lord. See, it's no use offering empty or vain praises to a God you don't know. It's no help to heap exaltation upon a God you don't follow. And so that's why verse 12 says it so well. Don't you want a good life, a long life, a good, wonderful life? And David says, of course you dear do. And if you do, fear the Lord and obey him. 
Choose good. Run from evil. That is the best way to live. Derek Kidner has written such a good little commentary in Psalms, and he says it so well about verses 11 through 14. He summarizes it this way. The good you enjoy goes hand in hand with the good you do. David here in these verses is trying to quell the suspicion first aroused in Eden that outside the will of God, rather than within it, lies enrichment. And so we could say it maybe in short this way. The good life is the godly life. The God we praise is the God we must fear. And to make this point emphatically, David says these things both positively and negatively here in verses 15 through 21. We've heard the positive over and over again. This Lord is wonderful. He delivers. He listens. He cares. He rescues. But David now says it in a little bit of a negative way because he knows that's the only way it will sink into our hard hearts. And so verses 15 through 21, the stakes are clearly shown. There is a great divide between those who God is for and those who God is against. The humble and the righteous who call out in dependence upon God, he will listen and deliver. The wicked and wrongdoers, however, those who oppose God and his ways, they will be held guilty and condemned. So it's very clear. It's very stark from Psalm 34. Not only praise God, but fear God as well. And this leads us to the final words of David in this psalm in verse 22. He has told us to praise with him. He's told us to learn from him. And now he says, take refuge with me in him. David summarizes and reminds them, reminds them what to do with this God who is worthy of our praise and mighty enough to be feared. And it's very clear. Run to him. Serve him. And take refuge in him. Because this God, he listens, he hears, he protects, he rescues, he saves, and he delivers all those who humbly call upon his name. And so David concludes there, with everything considered, it makes no sense to do anything other than to run to the Lord and take refuge in him. So we briefly heard from David now. He could have boasted in his harebrained yet effective high wire escape from Gath. But instead, he gave us a calling straight for the Lord and to the Lord. Boast in the Lord always. Let his praises continually flow from our lips. Magnify the Lord, you all his people. And unlike a fishtail, you can't ex- exaggerate God's goodness. You can't exaggerate his kindness. You can't speak too much of him. Alec Machir said it so well. He said, there is no situation where we cannot bless God, verse 1. For blessing means dwelling on his unchanging glories and excellencies. And they remain the same no matter how dark the earthly scene gets. Did you hear that? 
no matter how dark the earthly scene gets. Pandemics, riots, joblessness, sickness, no matter how dark the earthly scene gets, blessing God means dwelling on his unchanging glories and excellencies because they remain the same no matter what. We can't exaggerate who God is. We can't speak too much of him, but we may misrepresent him. And that's the warning here of this psalm as well. See, we may only speak words of praise about him. Oh, God is good. Praise God. Thanks be to God. But it would be a terrible misrepresentation of his goodness and his holiness if we didn't talk about fearing God, obeying God, uplifting the God who uplifts the righteous and puts down the wicked. It's much, much too easy to end sentences or begin lines with praise God, thanks be to God, and maybe casually talking with my neighbor about going to church, but never substantively talking about the Lord and who he is and what his character is like and calling on these people to say, this God I praise and I talk so freely about, this is the God to be feared. Let's not misrepresent God. And that's why David's psalm here is so beautiful and interweaving his call to praise and his testimony to the character of God. The God who is to be praised is a God who is good. And a God who is good cannot stand with the righteous. God is worthy, so boast of him always. God is holy, so fear him and walk in his ways. And God is good, so run to him at any in all situations. This is Psalm 34. But two things I'm still uneasy with, and that as, as I thought through this week on Psalm 34, and perhaps you're uneasy with them too. First, I know that I should praise God. I know that I need to talk more openly and substantively about the Lord, just as verses 1 through 3 tell me. I knew that coming into Psalm 34. And this is why, as important as I think verse 3 is, is our big aim for this passage, I think verse 8 and verse 9, the foundation of this psalm. Verse 8, I think, perhaps, is the, the engine room for this psalm. And let me tell you what I mean. Verse 8 is meant to be evocative. That's what good poetic writing does. It evokes a response. Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? You can't taste the Lord. You can't see him. No one can see him. But we know what David is asking us. If you really know that the Lord is good, praise will flow continually from your lips. Maybe an example will do. Let's say I owned a restaurant. And as my friend, I said, hey, would you mind telling your friends about this restaurant I'm opening up? And maybe you would do that because you're my friend. You'd go around town and say, hey, I have a friend. He's got a restaurant. You should check it out. But if I really wanted you to talk openly and, and thoughtfully and substantively about my restaurant, what would I do? 
I'd invite you to come in and maybe have a dozen of your friends around and I would serve you the best meal on the menu and I would let you taste it and I would let you see the experience of dining with good friends and good food. My hunch is if I did my job correctly and well that I wouldn't have to ask you to tell others about my restaurant. My hunch is that you'd be willing to go around town and to all your friends and anyone who's willing to listen, even if they don't ask you for a good place to eat, and say, hey, my friend Marty, he's got a great restaurant. It was amazing. Tasting and seeing that it's good. See, food and the taste sensation for many is a great opener of conversations, even amongst the most quiet of people. And I think that's why David uses such language here in verse 8. It's one thing to know that the food is good. Yeah, I think that's some good food. It's yet another thing to have tasted it and seen that it's good. Jim Packer, at the beginning of his great book called Knowing God, says it this way. He says, it's one thing to know God. It's, quite another, it's one thing to know about God. It's quite another thing to know God. The more we taste and see that the Lord is good, the more we will naturally, joyfully, and substantively tell everyone, even without them asking us, about this great God, our Savior. In the New Testament, both Hebrews chapter 6 and 1 Peter chapter 2, you can look up those references at some point later this week, both those New Testament passages pick up on this tasting idea from Psalm 34. And they use it to talk about Christian salvation and maturity and growing in Christ. And they want to make the point that this tasting of the Lord upon your salvation is more than just a casual sampling. It's the true sense that you know you are lost, hopeless, helpless, and destined for eternal plight. It's the sense that you know that life without Christ is hell in this life and hell in the next. And so when you taste the redeeming forgiveness of Christ, it's so good. You never want to go without. You never want to go without the flavor of the Lord. When you know that a life pursuing godliness is a sweet and wonderful life. When you know that living with purpose and meaning is living for the things of the Lord. When you have a peace that transcends all human understanding, especially in times like these. Then you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And then and only then will praises flow from your lips. So how do we flow on with praises? We taste and see that the Lord is good. But how do we taste and see that the Lord is good? Let me offer you one more dinner illustration. One of my favorite historical figures is Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson became president right when Washington, D.C. was newly formed. And the White House was newly built. And so Jefferson knew that there was hardly any good restaurants around town for incoming legislators to come and dine with him. And so Jefferson would often throw these house parties and have 8 to 15 people over for dinner on a regular basis. 
And he did, though, did this to build some goodwill to these people coming into D.C. to help him legislate this new country. And one such legislator was a name by a man named William Plummer. He was a senator-elect from New Hampshire in 1802. And he came into town with an already decided opinion that was definitely against Thomas Jefferson. He called him a Jacobin and other period-appropriate derogatory names. He thought Jefferson was unfit to be president, and he hated the ideas of this newly forming Republican Party that Jefferson was leading. So, Jefferson invited him to dinner. And we know what Plummer thought about these dinners that he got invited to because he kept a journal, a diary. And so, after the first dinner, Jefferson, or Plummer said, Night with Jefferson was a terrible night. Just the kind of thing I expected. I don't like this man. But I have to admit, he served some good wine. I enjoyed that part, at least. Dinner number two. I still dislike Jefferson, and I don't trust him. But the meal, it was really good. That French chef he has was amazing. And the wines, unreal, exquisite. Dinner number three, Plummer says, another great dinner at the White House. And though I can't reconcile his politics, Jefferson has a fine taste, and he is quite a host. He led a conversation in a way that everyone felt like they were involved, and he actually took quite a bit of interest in me and my ideas. And then in 1808, when Jefferson decided to retire from politics after his second term, William Plummer came to Jefferson and pleaded that he, would you run for a third term, President Jefferson, which was allowed back then, would you please run for a third term? Well, Jefferson didn't, and Plummer went back home and became governor-elect to his home state of New Hampshire, and he ruled as a governor as a moderate Jeffersonian Republican. Jefferson went from detestable to imitable. Plummer tasted and saw that, in fact, Jefferson was good and substantive. And how did that happen? Regular fellowship and interaction. Hearing and being heard by Jefferson. Dwelling regularly and often in his presence. How do we grow in our tasting and seeing that the Lord is good? Regular fellowship and interaction with the Lord. Hearing what the Lord says by dwelling on things like Psalm 34 and communing with God daily, regularly, as our wonderful Father, talking to Him, pleading with Him, confessing to Him, asking Him. And as you do this sincerely, and as we do this sincerely here as family members at Old North Church, my hunch and my hope is that we will grow more and more open and substantive of our praise of the Lord, especially with those at work, at the ball fields, at the coffee shops, and with our neighbors. So here's your task. Bury Psalm 34, verse 8, deep within you. Memorize it. 
Dwell upon it. Interpret all reality through it. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Even in hard times, we know that the Lord is good, as Alec Machir told us earlier. And then ask yourself regularly, what's the list of things that I have that I'm very open and ready to talk about with others? Even without them asking me? And then ask yourself, why am I not this open and substantive about the things of the Lord? What's holding me back? Taste and see that the Lord is good. Well, the second thing from this passage I just want to make sure we understand on is if we're honest with ourselves, perhaps some of us are asking this question. Well, it'd be much easier, it was much easier for David to be openly gushing about the Lord. He was delivered. He was rescued. He really did taste and see the goodness of the Lord's provision. But that's not me. I mean, I don't have any great big personal problems going on right now, but we're living in a time of pandemic, joblessness, riots. When will God deliver us? How do I taste anything but bitterness right now? Well, a couple of things we want to say. First, trusting in the Lord and even humbly calling upon him won't necessarily alleviate our problems, minor or major. Look at verse 19. Affliction will happen to everyone, even the righteous. Scripture is clear that problems will hound us for many reasons all of our lives. But what this passage does promise is that we will be delivered. It mentions it many times. Now, can I ask you to consider this one fact? Instead of wondering if you will be delivered, can you consider the fact that you, if you're in Christ, have been delivered? That the statements here in Psalm 34 have happened to you as well? That when you look soberly at yourself, and then at verses 21 and 22, we must admit that we must be counted as the unrighteous. We deserve to be counted amongst those condemned because we are not holy as the Lord is holy. Think about the standard this psalm has just set up. It clearly shows our debt. We don't praise God as we should. We boast in many other things and other people other than the Lord. We spend many fishtails about ourselves and those around us to get attention and glory. We rarely cry out in humility unless it's the last ditch effort when there's no other way forward. So thank God for verse 22. Those who take refuge in the Lord will not be condemned. And that forcefully pushes us to the New Testament where the book of Romans indeed admits and confers that indeed we are unrighteous. But Romans 8, 1 says, But now that we have a righteousness only found in Christ, there is therefore no condemnation for those in Jesus Christ. For in Christ we have been delivered. In Christ we have been rescued from the worst plight one could have. Tyranny of the flesh. Slavement to Satan, passing our days in malice and envy and destined for judgment. But no more. Christ has done it all. 
Have you tasted and seen this good deliverance? Do you know it down to your bones? If you haven't, please do let us know. At the end of the service, you'll see a place where you could text us. You can send one of us an email, go on our website, pastor, or call a Christian friend. I want to taste this. I don't know if I've tasted and seen that the Lord is good in this deliverance. And if you have tasted it, may I ask, do you still taste the sweetness of having peace with God? Do you take joy at looking at Christ as your best and only refuge in this world? Do you gush about the Lord because you know that this life and the life to come wouldn't be anything without the deliverance and the refuge of the Lord? Friends, Psalm 34, 8 is the word that leaves us. This day with a good word. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you indeed will give us the sweet taste of knowing that you are good. And that you're to be honored and feared and obeyed. And that your ways are good and right Lord, let us flee wickedness and evil and indifference and callousness. Lord, let us flee cynicism and pessimism. And let us, Lord, instead put on righteousness and hope and optimism because you will one day come again and make everything right. And until that day, Lord, may we be found with overflowing praises from our lips to anyone within an earshot. Lord, may we taste and see that you are good so that we can do good by your name. We love you and praise you. Amen.